2: Well, John, uh, this is the inflation that you're looking for, and it comes in hotter than anticipated. Well, CPI up 8 tenths of 8%. That pushes the year over year CPI to 4.2%. Let's take a look at the core rate up 9 tenths of 8%. There's the one that's going to worry Wall Street. It's three times the amount in March, and on a year over year basis, we're up to 3%. Hello
3: and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. If you're under 45, listening to this in America, Europe or Japan, it's a fair bet you've never given much thought to inflation. The price of some things, like a college education, has gone up a lot in your lifetime. But by and large, the price of things we buy every day has been fairly stable even gone down. In fact, it is deflation falling prices that's more often kept policymakers up at night not the kind of double-digit inflation rates we saw in the 1970s. But is that all about to change? Well, that's the fear that started to rattle financial markets this week, especially after that unexpectedly high April inflation number came through in the US. That headline annual rate of 4.2% that you just heard about is the highest since 2009. It's also been seized on by Joe Biden's political opponents who put it together with recent disappointingly weak jobs growth and say his spending plans are going to bring on 70s-style stagflation. It doesn't help that drivers in parts of the US have been reminded of that era this week, waiting in long lines for a tank of gas thanks to a cyber attack on a big fuel pipeline. Now, we'll get the full story on that in a minute, from Bloomberg Energy Supremo Javier Blas. I'm also going to talk to a Wall Street economist with his own take on the great inflation debate. But first, we go to Chief Asia Economy Correspondent Ender Curran in Hong Kong to find out where at least some of this inflation pressure has been coming from.
1: U.S. exporters are crying
0: foul as the price
1: of shipping containers spikes.
0: Our Brian's- Semiconductors are the brains that power technology. And right now there is a massive shortage of those brains. This is now day four of one of the world's largest container ships completely bringing traffic in the Suez Canal to a standstill. It's hard to imagine.
4: China's factories have spent months absorbing shocks from soaring prices for shipping containers and raw materials, a scramble for semiconductors, and even the blockage of the Suez Canal. Now, manufacturers in the world's biggest trading nation are under pressure to pass on these charges to their overseas customers, potentially adding to global inflation pressures. Bryant Chan is president of Winwood Corporation Limited and among the manufacturers grappling with the price surge. I went to visit his offices in Hong Kong to hear what's happening. You know, 2021
5: has been a uh, very challenging year, and, and this time round, you know, we are seeing uh, increases in pretty much everything that we 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 purchase. The plastic resin, uh, we're seeing uh, increases in electronic components, packaging, metal parts. So pretty much, you know, everything that it's needed to to you know go into the manufacturing of a product.
4: Manufacturers in China are well used to volatile price swings. But this time, they say the breadth of cost increases is unusual. So I, I'm just going to
5: use sort of a random product. It's more like a consumer product. This is a camera that a hunter would typically use to track the motions of um, animals in the wild. So, you know, to help them when they go hunting.
4: The electronics components make up about 40% of the camera's costs and have risen roughly 10%. Other components, such as the packaging, make up over a tenth of total costs, and those have also risen about 10% in price.
5: So when we factor in all the different categories of material and the respective um, increases, this comes in at about 6% increase in cost for us.
4: The big unknown is how long these higher costs will last. The optimistic view is that the supply chain blockages caused by COVID-19 disruption might just smooth out, Manufacturers say they're looking for workarounds and cost savings to limit the need to pass on costs. Christopher Say is Chief Executive Officer of Musical Electronics Limited, which makes products such as Bluetooth speakers and high-powered home stereos for the US market.
6: Uh, We have two ways to do it. First way is to do the re-engineering, trying to save some courses from the re-engineering. And the second is how to do it uh, in a better way, that means how it can be more efficient in production. So that may save some money.
4: But he also says the pressures are real. He cites, for example, a shortage of integrated circuits, which are crucial components for electronics.
6: Uh, it can be raised up from a year ago, let's say $10 to $20 to even $30 or $40. So the, the difference could be very big and huge. Not only that, uh, also the delivery time is much longer than what we are expecting. Uh, It's very difficult. Uh, We have to inform the customer that for the current business that we have taken the orders, we have no choice. We will uh, uh, just manufacture it according to the price that we have have agreed. But a year later or nine months later, uh, sorry that we have to increase our uh, pass all our increased courses to our customers.
4: Chang Shu, Bloomberg Economics' chief Asia economist, says the soaring producer price index in China is only one part of a global jigsaw.
0: My sense is at this point, China's PPI development is part of the global story rather than being the single factor driving it, and that several things going on for the global producer prices. Um, clearly, there's a surge in demand um, economies are coming back, they, they are opening up. The global manufacturing sector is booming.
4: I also spoke to Ding Shuang. He's chief economist for Greater China and North Asia at Standard Chartered. His research shows a correlation between China's producer prices and US consumer inflation.
6: So we may see PPI inflation at 7% handle around the middle of the year. We cannot conclude for sure that China's PPI increase causes higher CPI inflation in the US and the rest of the uh, rest of the world. But there is anecdotal evidence that the Chinese exporters have gained pricing power recently. And he
4: says where China goes, the world follows.
6: Uh, because the fact that China recovered faster than the rest of the world, the inflation indicator in, in China, may have a leading uh, role in predicting the inflation in the rest of the world.
4: However it plays out, the last few months have been pretty volatile for China's manufacturers and few expect a circuit breaker anytime soon. Winwood's Chan sees higher prices as inevitable. But in the situation where
5: the increases
4: are across a range of different categories
5: and at a very steep rate, it's certainly not something that a manufacturer is able to bear you know, alone.
6: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions alongside Snaps Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Faye Fei Lee of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com/techsf. slash Well,
3: talking of supply bottlenecks and the potential for inflation, You might remember I spoke to Bloomberg's chief energy correspondent, Javier Blas, earlier in the year when that big ship got stuck in the Panama Canal. We talked then about the key bits of US infrastructure which could really hurt if they got interrupted. Somewhat unnervingly, one of them, the country's biggest petroleum pipeline, has just been hit by a massive cyber attack, raising fears that gas stations all over the US could start to run dry. Have uh, you just tell us quickly I guess you know what happened and and why is this pipeline so important?
2: The colonial pipeline is the most important uh, oil products pipeline in the United States. It transports gasoline diesel and jet fuel uh, from the u s Gulf of Mexico coast where most of the refiners in the u s are located into the cities and big um, suburbs of the east coast of the United States so everything from Think about Atlanta all the way up to New York and, and beyond. And and it transports about 2.5 million barrels a day of refined products. Just to put that in context, that's more than the all the oil demand of Germany, just in one single pipeline. And what happened is that the pipeline company called Colonial got hacked on a c- cyber attack on Friday. And since then, the pipeline has been shut down and... Um, Refined products are beginning to run quite short in the United States.
3: So that means that that means gas stations, petrol stations up and down the country, actually finding they're running out of petrol.
2: Yes, and and th- th- there are two concerns here. One is that obviously those gasoline, um, those fuel stations are not getting uh, the supply as regularly as they used to, uh, and they are draining down their stocks. But also because many citizens are hearing the news about the hack, the first thing that they are they are doing is well i should just put more gasoline on my car they are going into the gas stations there is a bit of panic buying and that is accelerating the demand so it's making the things a bit worse so
3: when's it going to be fixed
2: well colonial has said that they are hoping to um restore substantially all services by the end of the week but they're not telling much to their customers, the big oil companies, the big uh, gas station companies. And, um, and, and the concern is that this may be uh, go a bit longer. And it's also not very clear whether uh, Colonial really have a plan to restore everything. At the moment, they have been able to restore service on a very small portion of the pipeline. And they are doing it manually rather than using any technology and anything automatic.
3: I mean, and when people are listening to this, it could be that it will have been it will have been resolved. But it, of course, it will still raise questions about longer term uh, how well prepared this pipeline, other key bits of infrastructure, are uh, against this kind of attack.
2: Yes, and and uh, colonial is not unique. I mean, it's a very large pipeline, but around the world there are similar key pieces of infrastructure that uh, we take for granted to transport crude oil, refined products, uh, sometimes natural gas, or the electricity network, the grid. And... The fact that Colonial was uh, suffered this uh, cyber attack and it was, in a way, easy to shut down completely the, the, the whole pipeline is really getting a lot of people in the oil industry and the, the wider energy industry very concerned because they think that it is possible that happening to Colonial it may be possible in other pieces of key infrastructure. Do we think they've paid a ransom? Is that going to be
3: part of the solution?
2: Well, uh, certainly they have been attacked by a ransomware. They, they they are being asked to pay some some money. Um, and interestingly, the United States government is saying publicly that they are not advising one way or the other to the company. Which I suppose that it means that at some point, perhaps Colonial will pay.
3: So they're not. it so is interesting. They're not saying what they would normally do when people when people get. Taken hostage, that you that you mustn't uh, give in. Is this by far the biggest attack on this kind of critical infrastructure that we've seen? Have we have? Is there been have there been other attacks in other countries?
2: It's certainly the biggest attack of this kind that we have seen in the United States. We have seen uh, attacks to the electricity network in, in developing countries, and we saw a couple of very big and prominent attacks in Saudi Arabia against Saudi Aramco and another petrochemical company. That they didn't affect production, but they really affected lots of uh, computers in, in, in offices and, and, and more kind of the back and, and, and middle office of those companies. So, certainly, this is, a, a, this is a, an escalation, uh, but this is not the first time that we have seen uh, cyber criminals targeting the energy infrastructure.
3: I guess finally, you know, we are obviously thinking in this program about inflation, long-term uh, risk of uh, or possibility that inflation is really coming back. Um, should we expect gas prices to rise as a result of this? Do you think there's going to be any lasting effect?
2: We we have seen already uh, um, uh, an increase in gasoline prices, retail prices uh, in the United States on average in the country heat. Uh, on Tuesday, a six and a half year high of almost three dollar per gallon, uh, and we probably we're gonna see sustain sustained prices for the next few days. Uh, until the situation is resolved. Beyond that, uh, it's a bit of a question mark, but uh, with with the U.S. economy opening up and more people hitting the roads, probably we are going to continue to see pressure on on gasoline prices. And and I will not be surprised if we see $3 per gallon um, for most of of of, of the summer in the U.S. That will be the highest prices that U.S. drivers have faced since 2014.
3: And in many other parts of the world, certainly in Europe, that would be such a bargain. Uh, Javier blast! thank you very much as ever.
2: My pleasure.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
3: Now, on Stephanomics, we tend to talk often to academic economists and policymakers about the trends shaping the global economy. But of course, anyone investing long term in businesses in the US and around the world also has to have a view on much of that, which is why I thought we'd check in with Jason Thomas, the head of global research at the Carlyle Group. A U.S.-based investment company, um, Jason. We're, we're going to talk about uh, the very long term. But what's your what's your response to this week's inflation news? Was it was it as dramatic as all that?
1: Well, I, I think this is something that that we anticipated. There, there's two effects at work. Number one, base effects. When you look at April 2021, you're measured relative to a lockdown economy 12 months ago. So year-over-year so year inflation is going to be higher as a consequence of that. Uh, Secondly, there there is genuine inflationary pressure, and and it's related to shortages and underproduction of durable goods in in 2020 relative to uh, demand for for many of those products. And and so this is uh, ongoing. I think that the shortages persist, the price pressures persist. And I think that we're going to see in months ahead uh, inflation somewhat above uh, the Fed's 2% target.
3: But if there's, a, if there's a relative shortage of things that people want to buy, shouldn't we worry about that getting a lot worse uh, when the economy starts to reopens?
1: No, you know, it really interestingly, reopening is not the problem. In fact, it's the solution. So I, th- I think the more that one studies the origin of this inflationary pressure, the more comfortable he or she is, that it's ultimately transitory in nature. And the reason I say that is is when we look back at 2020, you had a very big decline in in the production of of durable goods and manufacturing. And essentially manufacturers, they locked down initially for for public health reasons, of course, but were very slow to scale back production because many of them feared that 2020 and the pandemic was going to be essentially a replay of the global financial crisis where there was a, a sudden stop of economic activity huge plunge uh, in sales of durable goods. But interestingly, as it turned out, it was almost the exact opposite. Because after that initial decline in, in demand in, in March, April, into May, we found that households, actually, because they their spending on travel, tourism, live events, was so depressed, and in fact, suppressed by, by social distancing and, and uh, public health regulations that they actually that that savings really financed a boom in durable goods so you had new and used car sales that were up 17% you had things like motorcycle sales up 38% relative to the pandemic you had hot tub sales up by a comparable magnitude appliances furniture so so it's really this interaction where you you had a, a big decline in in the output and capacity because business managers, manufacturers are really risk averse, concerned about the outlook, at the same time that that you had a a boom uh, in the household sector. So reopening, what that means is that household spending is going to normalize. So you're you're very likely to see on declines in in the purchases of things like hot tubs or or home renovations or uh, motorcycle sales as more money goes towards theater tickets, airfares, hotel stays, et cetera. So so I think that you're going to have a moderation in spending at the same time that uh, capacity and output uh, rises back to to pre-pandemic levels. And and by the fall of this year, perhaps into the winter, you'll have a, a moderation in some of these price trends.
3: I can certainly sympathize with that as someone who spent much more on on tents and uh outdoor fire pits in the last few months than I might have anticipated uh spending. One thing that uh, clearly has uh, some of uh, president Biden's opponents quite fired up is the idea that, you know, you've got this potential for for inflation and then several trillion dollars of additional spending coming down the track, kind of fiscal spending that we've not seen in a long time. Um, is is that something that we should worry about as an, as something that will give us inflation?
1: Well, I think that what's been passed so far, uh, there was a one point nine trillion dollar stimulus, uh, and and that the the estimate suggests that about one point one trillion of that, about five almost five and a half percent of GDP, uh, is going to be injected into the economy in in this year twenty twenty one. But really, the bulk of it has already come and gone. In that, the, it was the the fourteen hundred dollar stimulus payments that hit bank accounts starting March 14th into into April with some of the physical checks. And then the ongoing unemployment insurance benefits. But but that's not something that I expect to be sustained. You know, I, I think it's a it's a one time that the money arrives, it's it's spent. So so I'm not not terribly worried there. Now if there's ongoing spending, if, if we have uh, additional programs that are, that are enacted where, where the spending you know can can reach uh, very high levels, at some point there is there's reason to suspect uh, that that we could have sustained aggregate demand that outstrips uh, the, the the ability of supply to uh, to adjust. But but we're we're certainly not close to being uh, there yet. And I suspect that that most of the spending that's contemplated going forward is going to be very unlike 2021 in that it's going to be phased over a a 10-year window so as to uh, make that risk uh, less likely.
3: We have been mainly talking about the the next year or two, but when you think about the next sort of 5, 10, 20 years, are you thinking that this is going to continue to be like the last 10 or 20 years in that inflation has just not really been the issue? Uh, that we've been mainly worried more about if anything deflation falling prices than rising prices. Are you when you look ahead do you think that the future's going to look fairly like that or do you think there is potentially a more long-term change underway?
1: Uh, you know the, the, I would say the biggest change or or one of the biggest changes in global macroeconomics over the past 20 years has been the way that we interpret the Japanese situation. 20 years ago Japan was viewed as sui generis; that this was a specific context, and it was very specific to, to Japanese institutions, cultures, some of some of the the frictions that exist.
3: The fact that they had they, fall, the fact they had falling prices, it was like a Japan fall, and the, an the inability
1: of the yeah. central bank to stimulate demand. Uh, it, it it just seemed that they were they had this this conundrum that that seemed again to be very specific to Japan that the effect of a negative demand shock would would be to to falling wages and the way that that created a very specific psychology uh, that that is ultimately disinflationary and, and in fact, deflationary. But today, I think that global macroeconomics is now open to the possibility, and in fact, many people believe, that, that rather than specific to Japan, Japan was really just the vanguard, the first economy to experience what... Other advanced economies are are now getting a taste of in differing degrees, certainly the Eurozone far more than than the United States thus far. You also have technology and technology has a very profound disinflationary effect in in two ways. First, the, the data transmission, data storage, communications technology prices really decline very steadily each year. And as that accounts for a larger share of the capital inputs, you essentially have a situation where $100 of current cash flow buys, you know, $112 of capital equipment. So, so that increases uh, businesses cash flow and, and also business savings while also having this disinflationary act on, on the price of, of their goods and services. Secondly, technology has allowed for the emergence of digital platforms, businesses that are in many ways infinitely scalable. That is to say that they can increase revenues with little to no in incremental investment, little to no incremental hiring. And, and those sorts of businesses are, really are now uh, the, the largest businesses in the US economy by market capitalization. And, and they're quite different. They Today, they generate cash from operations. They may cases is, is four to six times uh, the amount of money that they reinvest in the business after accounting for for R and D and and other uh, current expenditures that that's quite different than the largest econ- the largest businesses in our economy, uh, thirty forty years ago, which are largely industrial conglomerates. That when they reached capacity, they had to go to financial more. Market- um, to get the, the um, money necessary to build new plants, buy new equipment, scale up capacity. When, when they reach capacity, they had to raise wages so as to bid labor away from competitors or, or actually uh, businesses in other industries. These are profound structural changes to the economy that, that I think are overwhelmingly disinflationary. And I, and I don't see any reason to suspect uh, that that they're going to reverse anytime soon.
3: It's interesting that you say that, and obviously it chimes with some of the discussion we had in um, uh, last week's uh, podcast because we were looking at the sort of changing global corporate landscape and the, what the you know the biggest fifty companies in the world uh, now relative to uh, nineteen ninety and how much less capital intensive they were, and many of the things that you've just been been saying uh, there are those though who would point to some of those trends but also the very the disinflationary impact that China, for example, has had over the last twenty or thirty years and say actually those things are going into reverse we 've heard about it in in Asia on this program, but you know not just short term but wages going up in some of these low cost production company countries um, labor shortages appearing in the u s but also uh, at at a global level, just to push back a bit, you know, you're underestimating that. I mean, yes, all the things that you've said have been true, but are they going to be a bit less true in the future?
1: China was a a major contributor to the disinflation in advanced economies over the past twenty five years. That that is undeniable. But but I think it's that it doesn't necessarily imply that rising wages in China or the demographic issues in China will necessarily lead to, to higher in prices or higher structural inflation going forward. And I think that that's the key fallacy uh, among many who, who are propounding this argument, which is to say that they, as, as Chinese wages rise, as the demographic shortfall starts to create a shortage of workers in China, the, the advanced economy uh, trend inflation rates are going to rise as a result as there's worker shortage the reason i think that this is not true is because when you look at the trade-offs among manufacturers today it's very often a uh, labor-intensive manufacturing processes in in emerging market economies where the wage rates are relatively low w- relative to uh, automate automation intensive robotic intensive manufacturing processes in advanced economies. And you see that when you look at robot intensity, robots per capita, very often it is in those high wage economies that are having demographic shortfalls. Of course, East Asia, uh, uh, Japan, Korea, uh, Germany uh, also with, with high, higher robots per capita. So, so, you know, going forward, uh, I think that this demographic shortfall is in, in this shortage of workers is going to to really increase the the capital intensity of of some of these manufacturing processes. And and rather than uh, upward pressure on on inflation, uh, it's actually just going to accelerate uh, some of these trends that that we're witnessing.
3: I guess the the final question uh, would be, what all this means uh, for wages, I mean the other, for, for many you know the 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 positive side of inflation fears is wage hopes that they might finally get a pay rise so what's the what's the implication of what you're saying for wages
1: in in the USA? what I think longer term the Fed is trying to do is to not choke off recoveries and expansions just as real wages are finally growing and and so you know when, when the Fed took a look back on the last 10 years, they decided that policy wasn't too accommodative as many analysts feared. Policy was actually too tight. And they looked at the the current framework and and implemented over the last decade. Uh, There would have been far fewer rate hikes, uh, maybe 2015, 2016, but really in that that 2017 to 2019 period, there there would have uh, probably been one third Uh, as many rate hikes as as they actually implemented. So if the Fed takes this more patient, accommodative approach, that uh, as the the, uh, payroll employment reaches and then exceeds pre-pandemic levels, that we'll actually start to see some sustained wage gains. But in general, I do think that more macro models and more macroeconomists are are really trying to take account labor heterogeneity and realizing that aggregates or averages as it relates to wages are really not telling the story. And and I think that that's also why uh, the Fed has become much more uh, focused on equitable and inclusive growth uh, because we we don't want um, very high returns on human capital or skilled labor to in any way um, disguise uh, what what could be languishing wages in in, in other segments of of the market.
3: Well, that is a very important note to end on, and it certainly is is the lesson of a lot, possibly, of the last 20 or 30 years that the averages can look a lot better uh, than what's going on uh, beneath the surface. Um, Jason Thomas, thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me.
3: Now, if you're interested in hearing exactly the opposite take on what's going to happen to inflation, you should flick back in your Stephanomics archives, I know you have them, to November last year, my interview with Charles Goodhart and Manoj Pradhan. They literally wrote the book on the subject. Now that is it for this episode of Stephanomics. I'll be back next week with a lot more from around the world. In the meantime, please rate the programme. Thank you. And should you feel the need, you can always get more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics by following at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson with special thanks to Jason Thomas and Brittany Berliner at the Carlisle Group, Javier Blas and Ender Curran. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy and this was Lucy Meekins last week as the executive producer of Stephanomics. So thank you to her for all her hard work and good luck, Lucy, with your new job on Bloomberg Day.